Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we call upon thy name tonight. We do thank thee for thine abundant mercy and for thy saving grace. We thank thee for it illustrated in the passage we have read tonight in John chapter 8. And we pray that as we look into the passage and delve into its depths, that we will know thy help and thy guidance and thy blessing. We know that some of the modern versions of the Bible have put a little stamp on part of this Bible reading we've had tonight, and more or less flagged it up as being, oh, is it reliable or is it not? But we thank Thee that it is absolutely reliable, and we thank Thee for its message of grace and mercy, such as we were thinking about in our building here this morning. So help us to magnify the mercy of God. Help us, Lord, to revel in thy great grace. And may these not just be terms, may they be enjoyed by us in our hearts and in our minds. Sea of souls, restore backsliders, encourage saints, magnify above all things thy great name and thy wonderful work. We pray for Jesus' glory. Amen. It was Robert Caudry, Church of England preacher, but very familiar with the Puritan cause and very sympathetic to it as well. And he was famous for a book, A Treasuring or a Storehouse of Similes. But what Caudry said was this, and here's what we want to quote him saying tonight. As a fisherman, when he has a great fish on his hook, lets out the line so that the fish may swallow down the hook and be more surely caught. Even so, he says, the devil, when he has a poor sinner on his hook, does not at first treat him roughly, but stretches out his rod, line and all, that he may make the surer of him and hold him the faster. Now, the picture Codby is painting there about the fisherman and then tying it in with the devil, he is exactly correct in doing this, because the devil knows full well that if the sinner can just be stopped from meeting Jesus Christ. Then no joy will that sinner know, no heaven will that sinner ever see, but he will end up being judged severely, he will die eternally, and he will find his home in an awful and an eternal hell. So, in all of his fiendish malice, the devil strains every nerve. He places one temptation to sin after another, after another, in front of that person, and he does all that he can to ensure that person does not come to Christ and come into possession of his great salvation. This kind of fiendish activity you can see in the incident we have described in our Bible reading tonight in John chapter 8 and the verse 3 through to 11 in particular. 
Our Lord setting the scene here. He's teaching in the temple. And suddenly there's an interruption as he is preaching that day. There's a crowd coming with a very deliberate step, with a formidable appearance, and they're led by those determined figures of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that crowd moves through the temple grounds. It steers itself one direction towards Jesus Christ, where he's standing and preaching. It roughly drags a terrified woman into the center of the circle, and it proceeds to table some damning evidence about her lifestyle. The case is stated coldly and calculatingly and confidently, and the query is thrown into the teeth of the Savior. You'll read about it in John 8, verse 4 and 5. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? And they think, we played our master card here. These scribes and these Pharisees, you can imagine them, they're starting to smirk and rub their hands in glee, and they're exchanging nods and whispers because they're sure that they have taken Jesus and they've pushed him into a corner out of which he will find no escape. Ah, he's dumbfounded now, they're saying, isn't he? He wasn't expecting us to come and hit him with this issue. He's been able to wriggle free from all of our questions right up to this time that we have asked previously, but here's the question that will tie him in knots. Those scribes and Pharisees were so pleased with themselves so too was their master, the devil. Because here, he believed, was another soul held firmly in his grasp that he was not going to give up on. And he wasn't afraid to pull her out in public display here. And here's an example of the control that I have over a life. He was proud of that. He had tempted this woman to sin throughout her life. And now, finally, he had pulled off his master tomb and led her to commit the scarlet sin of adultery. My temptations have been top class, the devil is saying. My plan has been realized. My trap has worked. And look, see what's happening now. My men have pulled this woman before Jesus, and he's going to be forced to cap the scenario that I have created and totally condemn this woman. But it didn't happen. It did not happen. The curtain came down on this incident with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're now scuttling from the scene, stricken in their own consciences, convicted by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ towards this individual. And so our Lord, He turns in that grace to this woman, and as she stands trembling, guilty, without excuse in front of Him, He says in John 8 verse 10 and verse 11 records it, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? 
She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And now the devil isn't rejoicing anymore because the devil, in this instance, has been robbed of his prey. Heaven is howling. Heaven is dismayed. Rather, hell was howling. Hell was dismayed. But heaven, by contrast, was rejoicing. And I'm happy as well. I am happy too because as I preach the gospel tonight, this event recorded in John chapter 8 puts into my hand a message of hope. And I can take it up and offer it to all guilty and despairing sinners, to everybody who needs and seeks after God's great salvation. What are the major lessons here? We see, first of all, the evidence of universal pollution. The evidence of universal pollution. Scribes and Pharisees took this woman, an adulteress. They interrogated her. They accused her. They squeezed an admission of guilt out of her. It wasn't going to be too difficult to extract because, as they claimed themselves in John 8 and 4, the woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. She was guilty without question. She had no defense whatsoever. Her sin was exposed more than that. When those Jewish leaders frog-marched her off to Jesus Christ, they made sure that they brushed up on their knowledge of the law, and they reminded him back in the law, the law of Moses, given by God to Moses. That law to Moses stipulated what should be done when an offense like this was committed. And so in verse 5 they say, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. So it's not merely a case of her sin being exposed, but also in their lips her sentence was expounded. She should be stoned. Of course they quoted Moses accurately. And you can check it out in Leviticus 20 and 10, Deuteronomy 22 and 22. So what did Jesus do? The sin of this woman had been drawn to his attention. He'd been reminded now of the proper sentence given by God for this sin under Jewish law. What then? Note the fact that while Jesus did not deny either the sin or the sentence, while he did not smooth over the iniquity that had been committed, while he didn't sidestep the judgment that the law had raised, what he did was this. He stooped down, wrote upon the ground, and when he straightened up again, he exposed the sin of those merciless scribes and Pharisees. He caused them to consider the corruption of their own hearts. He embarrassed and disgraced them in the eyes of the people. For when he began to lay it on the line for them, they were obliged to go running for cover. How did he do that? Simple. By doing what they had done to him by directing them to the Scriptures, God's holy word. Look at our Lord's actions in John 8 and the verse 7. So when they continued asking him, so they're belligerent, 
They're badgering him. They're driving this home. They won't let go. Dog with a bone style. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. That was taking them away back to Deuteronomy 17 and the verse 7, which says, The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put the evil away from among you. And as Jesus reminded them, those scribes and those Pharisees, that in the law of Moses, that you were so fond of quoting and have just done to me in that law, it turns the spotlight on you. Your activity is now demanded. It requires you, the witnesses of the deed, you're required by law to be the executioners of the punishment. And as Bishop J.C. Ryle from Liverpool said, That allowed him to send their minds home to their own private lives. It forced them to become conscious of their own guilt before God. It compelled them to accept the fact that they too, along with this discredited woman they had pulled in, they too were under condemnation. The law that accused and convicted and condemned her also accused and convicted and condemned them. It condemns all of us. All of us. Every unconverted person in this meeting is in exactly the same position. Still condemned. The Word of God classifies all of us as sinners. Romans 3 and 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Galatians 3 and 22. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin. We can't raise a dispute with those words. We are all sinners because we have all broken the law of God. And while I'm quite aware today that many people in our society, they will object to being labeled along with this woman and put shoulder to shoulder with this kind of a woman. And they'll say, it's not right for you to compare me with her. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. It's unjust to look at me in the same light as you're looking at her. While they may argue that, I'm quite convinced These Pharisees back then in Jesus' day could have stood up and made the same objection. We haven't done this particular sin, but notice they didn't do it. Why? Because they realized the law of God is not only concerned or shattered by outward deeds, but the scope of God's law is such that like a telescopic lens, it goes out and out and out and in and in, and what it does is it stretches to include inward desires and internal intentions. To actually go out there, exercise your bodily faculties in the practice of sin, that's breaking the holy law of God. Of course it is, but even to engage your mind or your heart in relishing, contemplating, thinking about that sin with a love in your heart is a breaking of the holy law of God. Who then has perfectly kept the law of God? 
Who has done that? Blunt and true was the answer of John 7 and verse 19. None of you keepeth the law. And because we're all sinners, we're all breakers of God's law, then the whole penalty of the law of God that has been broken is set against our name. And that penalty is curse and death, is condemnation and damnation. I read in Galatians 3 and verse 10, Cursed is every one that continueth, not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. I read in Ezekiel 18 and the verse 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. I read in Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. And so I stand and you stand condemned. What does John 3 and 18 say? He that believeth on him is not condemned. Believeth in Christ, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's a terrible thought. Much more terrible is the reality. Every day, every hour, every minute of every hour, every second of every minute of every hour of every day, we go around condemned to go to bed at night, condemned, to get up in the morning, next day, condemned still, to sit down at your meals, condemned, to do your duties and engage in business, condemned. Can anything on earth be more terrible than this? But that is the condition of everyone who is not saved. Damocles in the ancient story sat down at a rich banquet in Syracuse. And that banquet, look at it, he would have enjoyed it so much would he have enjoyed that had it not been for the fact that a razor-sharp sword suspended by a single hair was dangling directly above his head. That hair holding the sword could snap at any moment and he would be history. How could he enjoy a feast in circumstances like that? Man, woman, young person tonight, how can you laugh? How can you enjoy life? How can you be relaxed when the sentence of condemnation that has already gone out against you may at any moment be executed? How can you do it when at any given second you may die and descend into hell, the horror of it all? So when John it. Verse 3 through to 11, we learn the truth of universal pollution. Both the accused, the woman, and her accusers, the scribes and Pharisees. So the adulterous woman and the Pharisees, they were both sinners. Because all have sinned and all are under sentence. But for our comfort, we also note not only universal pollution, but the evidence of unmerited pity. The evidence here of unmerited pity. Have another look at the problem that these proud men brought to Jesus. Study the problem carefully. Consider the issues it raises because those issues are important. They're momentous. They have a direct impact upon us today. Verse 4 and 5 of John 8, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? 
that was a big issue, a profound problem. Here's what it amounted to. And this is why they thought, we have cornered Christ right here. If Jesus had said, oh, no matter, let her go, the scribes and Pharisees would have been all over it, would have been ultra quick to accuse him of being an enemy of the law of God. God's law says, but you've told, oh, just let her go, forget about it. Are you not the one that we heard say? Isn't it recorded in Matthew 5 and verse 17? Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Didn't you say you were going to fulfill the law? Ah, that was just a sham, empty talk, an abominable lie. If he had ignored the charge that they brought against this shameful woman, they would level the charge at him that you are compromising with sin. If, however, on the other hand, our Lord had responded to their question by saying, Stone her. Let the full rigors of a broken law be applied to her. Let her carry the sentence. Show her no mercy. Then they would have said, Ah, but we thought you were the friend of sinners. We thought you were gracious. And they would have held up his name to ridicule. Gone would be that name of this man received sinners. Gone would be his reputation. He is the friend of publicans and sinners. They would have poured scorn upon his reason that he stated himself for coming into the world. What did he say? Luke 19 and 10, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. You're not doing much of a job of it now, are you? That's what they would have said. So it appeared that either way, whether he acted in justice or in mercy, the scribes and the Pharisees had impaled Christ on the horns of a dilemma. How could he ever face the issue they put in front of him and get out of that with any integrity? To them, it was a perfect catch-22 situation. No doubt it was a perplexing and profound problem. It raised the age-old difficulty that's addressed in Romans 3 and verse 26, how God might be just, and at the same time, the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Or to borrow the language of Bible commentator Arthur W. Pink, that problem was how justice and mercy could be harmonized. There stands the sinner. The righteous law of God demands that she should be punished. To ignore that necessity would be equal to taking the commandments of God and lifting a sledgehammer and breaking every one of those commandments into smithereens, or it'll be going like the book, uh, taking the book of God here, and you're coming to it with a pair of hedge clippers, and you're just clumsily hacking out every text that promises the wrath of the Most High God will fall on human sin. What then is to happen to this poor sinner? 
She has broken God's law in a clear fashion. She is deserving of condemnation without question. Her only hope lies in mercy. Her only hope must travel the highway of grace. But how can mercy be given to her when the sword of justice is closing up the way? How can grace flow to her without first steamrolling over God's righteous and holy character and God's divine commandments? The Pharisees couldn't see a way. No human wisdom ever could. But listen to it. God himself has worked out an answer to this awesome difficulty. He has provided a supreme solution to this big problem. And if you look carefully at the Bible record of the incident here, you'll see a big hint as to how the Savior brings a marvelous answer to this problem in the actions that he engages in. What does he do? Well, the first activity that the Savior did when the scribes and Pharisees dragged the woman before him was to, verse 6, stoop down with his finger right in the ground. That reminds us of something. Once in the Old Testament, God had written with his finger on stone. In Exodus 31, the verse 18, we read, and he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Old Testament. Here again, in the New Testament, he does the same. He writes on the ground. And the significance of his action was this. He was confirming God's commandments seconding God's righteous law, showing these ignorant Pharisees that he did approve of all that God had said. And he was in effect now saying to them, you quote Moses' commandment to me, and you try to put me on a collision course against it. I gave it, I wrote it, and with this finger I confirm it. But he wrote on the ground again, almost immediately afterwards. Why was that? After he had said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. I read in John 8 and 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Why a second time? Once again, the Old Testament Scriptures supply the answer. Those first tables of stone written by the finger of God were dashed under the ground by Moses and broken. A second step, a second set was therefore written by God. And what became of those second tables of stone? They were laid up in the ark. In Exodus 40, in the verse 20, they were covered in that ark by the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. And here I believe Christ is giving more than a hint of how he would save those who were, by the law, condemned to death. The law would not be set aside far from that. As at first stooping down, 
writing on the ground intimated the law would be upheld. It would be established. But as he stooped down and wrote the second time, he's signifying the shed blood of an innocent substitute will come between the law and those it condemned. And that's exactly what happened on Calvary. Two young men were friends at university. Both came out graduated at the same time and out in the world to build their reputations. One became an eminent judge, the other became a businessman, very successful businessman, for he, he built up a personal fortune. He was constantly dealing in the stock exchange. However, an exceptionally dark day came. During that day, on that stock exchange, he lost everything. Trying to claw back his old position of influence, he embezzled a large sum of money. At his trial, he pleaded guilty, hoping for some kind of clemency from the judge. And who did that judge turn out to be but the embezzler's old friend from university? Cordataishi speculated as to how far the friendship was going to affect the judge's verdict on the day, and they were amazed. But the judge summed up the case made absolutely no attempt to minimize the seriousness of that offense. And when he pronounced the sentence, an audible gasp filled the courtroom because it was the heaviest fine the law could impose. Then something happened. As the prisoner was about to be led away, the judge, removing his robe, went to the prisoner's side. Extending his hand to his old friend, the judge said, I'll pay the fine for you. He turned and left before the prisoner could say a word. By paying that fine, the judge reduced himself to severe financial straits. How like Jesus Christ, our Savior substitute. In our sinful condition, we were standing under the just condemnation of God. But Christ Jesus surrendered his majestic home in heaven, and he descended to this old broken world to bear our sins. Which is why we can read in Isaiah 53 and 5, for example, in Isaiah 53 and 12, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's why we read in the New Testament, in Hebrews 9 and 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And again in 1 Peter 2 and 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. He came to bear our sentence. For there on Calvary he absorbed the full penalty that was due to my sins. He died physically. He was tortured spiritually. But the crux of that cross work is that he endured the agonies and the torments and the tortures of an eternal hell that were reserved and deserved 
for me. Therefore, the just demands of the law have been satisfied by a Savior's blood and mercy can now be extended and exercised towards me. The problem of the ages is solved. From whence this fear and unbelief, since God, my God, has put to grief his spotless son for me. Can he, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged to thee? Since thou hast my discharge procured, and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again. At mine, it's true, it's amazing, it's remarkable, and we say hallelujah to that for our sin-bearing substitute. So in this incident, we have the evidence of universal pollution, unmerited pity, and finally and briefly unlimited pardon. Was this adulteress saved at the time she left Christ? I am convinced she was. Now, we can quote other evidence out of John chapter 8 here, but look at the statement made by Christ himself that he made to the woman in verse 11. Neither do I condemn thee. What? Why? Simply because he was soon to take her place and to be condemned for her, and those who were not condemned by Christ must be converted her pardon was granted to her full and free and blessed and one that opened up the way for her into a new life. Notice the order of Jesus' words in John chapter 8 and the verse 11, the order. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Underline the point. It was not go and sin no more, and because of that, I will not condemn thee. That would have been no good to her, left to herself. With the power of the Spirit absent from within her, she would be like every other sinner, powerless to stop sinning. She couldn't do it, so she never would have received salvation on those terrible terms. You see, reformation of life, is not the requirement for salvation. Some people think, if I'm going to be saved, need to turn over a new leaf and multiple new leaves and do this and do that and do the other thing. They are climbing up a steep precipice of ice, J.C. Ryle said, toiling hard and yet slipping backwards as quickly as they climb. They are, changing the picture, rowing a boat against a rapid stream plying the oar diligently, and yet, in reality, losing ground every minute. And changing the picture again, Ryle says, they are trying to build up a wall of loose sand, wearing themselves out with fatigue, and yet seeing their work roll down on them as fast as they throw it up. Such, he says, is the experience in every part of the world of all who think to cleanse themselves from their sins. You know something? It's impossible. You can't save yourself. 
And God doesn't expect you to do it. What he does emphasize is, however, reformation of life is the requirement after salvation. That's why I say, notice the order, neither do I condemn thee. And once she's pronounced justified and saved, then he directs, go and sin no more. A change was now to be evident in this converted woman's life. If you're unconverted tonight, the law of God condemns you. But I'm challenging you, will you leave your case in Jesus' hands? Take it out of your own. You can't save yourself. You can't work in any which way to gain or earn his favor. Will you leave your case in his hands? Will you give up all looking to feeling and all looking to form and all looking to ritual and all looking to ordinances and religion and works that you can do and trust Jesus only? Cling to his word. Lean upon a sacrifice. Call out for his mercy. Confess your sin and you will hear as this poor polluted woman heard those gracious words of Christ. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more.